Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. So Larry, we've been on a baseball kick and that's fine with me and fine with the listeners. I know a lot of folks out there love hearing you talk about the game. And here's a name that is so prominent in the research and the work that you've done, Hank Greenberg figures prominently in your books and memoirs and so forth, because he really did not only set the stage as a great player, but as a great role model for uh, young Jewish Americans. Tell us about Hank Greenberg. Well, um, actually, uh, I will. But before that, I want to say that um, we're talking about baseball. We're talking about something that's very important in the national culture. Uh, baseball is really does hold us together. We spoke about... Uh, Rudy Giuliani when he was the real, uh, at least the first version of Rudy Giuliani. And, uh, you know, and we're spending a lot of time telling baseball stories that are interesting, sort of funny. But I think baseball is very serious because um, it's part of it is the glue that holds America together. And it's, uh, it's still a very popular game. And uh, I think we should, you know, honor the game, which hasn't, it's changed a bit, but it's still the same game. Um, as far as Hank Greenberg is concerned, I've already spoken about him. I think the one that we see here about Hank Greenberg and the Irishman in 1946 was when I was at a Hank, when Hank Greenberg returned, 1946 was his first season. He won the home run crown late in the season from Ted Williams that year. And I think I told the story of the Irishman talking with a brogue in front of me about how the big yid handles uh, <laughs> the bat like a toothpick. And um, at, the, at that time, I thought maybe it was some sort of racial invective or something. But I, I've come to think of it. These guys were just admiring mm. his ability. I mean, um, you know, uh, I can be convinced of people's bad feelings, uh, but I think sometimes we misinterpret things. Yeah, taken in context. Yeah, as bad feelings that sure, are not sure. really bad feelings. Yes, Hank Greenberg was a great role model because I think that as an example for Jewish Americans, not just baseball fans, a guy that that it plays in Detroit where there's a lot of anti-Semitism and gives that up to enlist before December 7th in the service and rises from the uh, enlisted corps to become a captain, serves for four years, mostly in the Far East, comes back, wins the pennant for Detroit in his first season back in 1945 with a Grand Slam home run on the last day of the season, goes on to be the mentor for Ralph Kiner that makes him a home run championship when he played his last season for the Pirates and then goes on from there to become a general manager and an owner, but crosses the line, so to speak, to uh, vote for, f to support Marvin Miller in his drive for free agency and an escape from, I don't know, sort of a professional slavery because of the reserve clause that the owners had over the players. I mean, this guy, and he was a great husband to two different wives. And his support for Jackie Robinson. Uh, his support for Jackie Robinson. Right. 
uh, saying that anything I can do to help you, Jackie, I've been through the same sort of thing. That's when Jackie got to first base, when Hank was playing first base for the Pirates. So many stories. Uh, his son, uh, Steve Jr., now a very important financial maven, if you will, in New York, was also the vice commissioner uh, of baseball at one point and is a very foremost guy, played for Yale uh, and was the uh, captain of the Yale baseball team. They're just terrific family. And Hank Greenberg, mm. and he was a handsome six-foot-four giant. And uh, I'll tell you, when I went out to watch him play, I just loved him. I mean, how could you not love him? You couldn't You couldn't not want to root for this guy for all the right reasons. Um, you were lucky enough, and my dad too, and you know my dad now, you, we, you guys were lucky enough to have two teams in, in Boston, the Red Sox and the Braves, and two fields. And we all know the, we've been talking about Fenway, but Braves Field, another legendary park, which you guys all loved, and I don't doubt why. But there's a home run hitting contest in the 1940s that you wanted to talk about. You must have been there, I would imagine. Yes, I was. Um, and, yeah, I did love Bracefield, um, and we were lucky to have Are you, two Were you teams. one of the knothole gang? I'm not, it, not, 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 well, I mean— You I, should I, explain I, what that is for those who don't know. Yeah, not, uh, well, I think that allowed kids to get into the ballpark and sit out in the so-called jury box right, in right, deep right field right. and watch the games. And we had a million ways to get into games, not only the knothole gang, but they used to let kids in with their fathers for nothing— so I had a million fathers who took me to the <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you were the adopted son of many. So what about this hitting contest, uh, this home run hitting contest? Well, you remember Fenway Park. It was built in such a way that um, you know, right field was not far, 320 feet. Then there were the bullpens out there. And then there was the jury box, which was sort of a bleacher but fairly small. And it extended from deep right center field sort of over to the right field foul line. And it was about, I don't know, 25 rows high, and behind it at the top was a huge scoreboard that was about another 40 feet. Nobody ever hit it over that scoreboard. But one day we went out to see a home run inning contest, and Ted, as it was his habit, kept hitting home run after home run after home run. I mean, you couldn't believe that this guy could center on the ball and hit it, you know, uh, just a lot of consecutive ones. And most of them flew up to the base of that huge scoreboard, mm -hmm. which had to be like 450 feet from home plate. And um, so um, that home run hitting contest sticks in my mind because, you know, that was Ted Williams doing that. And, you know, I think in the in the game that day, or maybe it was another City Series game, before the regular season, the Red Sox and the Braves used to play what is called the City Series. Mm -hmm. I remember another, Johnny Sane. You remember Johnny Sane? Was great for a great, rain. Great pitcher for the Braves, <laughs> along with Warren Spahn. Yeah, yeah. Um, threw one that Ted liked, and he hit it a mile over the center fielder's head, way beyond the right center. That field must line. have been. I'm just. I'm just putting myself in your place as a kid to see both teams. I know it's exhibition, but to see both teams playing in your city, guys that you you admire on both sides of the leagues. Playing. That must have been a kick. Must have been a great no, you know, Don't forget they won the pennant in 1948, the Braves. Yes, yes. And they played the Cleveland Indians uh, in the World Series. Almost played the Red Sox in 48. Yeah, right? that would have been wonderful. Wouldn't it? Yeah, but they, And they had some – the Braves had some terrific players like Bob Elliott was the MVP that year, third baseman. He was terrific. And, you know, I was out to the ball game 
so many times, Jordan, that I could tell a home run instantaneously. So I'm sitting in the box seats, probably stole my way into the box seats, with a bunch of older fans. And Bob Elliott hit one, and I knew right away. I jumped up and I said, that's it! And the rest of them didn't know what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> and went over the left field fence. It was a home run. They had, you know, uh, Warren Spahn, maybe the greatest left-hander in base, yeah. winning this left-hander yeah. in baseball yeah. history. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny Sane was wonderful, later became a terrific coach for the Yankees, pitching coach. And they had uh, uh, really some some very fine players um, so that uh, – yeah, it was exciting to go out there. I mean, and they used to get great players at the end of their career. Um, like Paul Wehner uh, was a uh, great batter for Pittsburgh, and his little brother was also a Hall of Famer, I think. Uh, the Big and Little Poison, they called him. <laughs> and he got his 3,000th hit, Paul, in the uniform of the Braves. Ernie Lombardi, who probably was one of the great hitters in baseball history, but ran so slowly that the shortstop played him behind the left field fence. Oh, my God. Uh, almost. <laughs> Not right, quite. Right. And could throw him out from any place. That's what makes baseball so romantic in my mind. You get Every player is unique to himself, and every play is unique. Even a ground ball to shortstop. There's no matching ground ball ever that's the same ground ball. Let me talk with you about a different sport in the same location. Football at Fenway, 1940s. I remember football in the 60s when I was just a kid, you know, uh, when the Patriots would play there. they'd And I always wondered, how do they do that? Uh, they're playing baseball one day and football the next. Talk a little bit, if you will, about Fenway in the 40s and some of the football you saw. I used to go out there with Yale Altman, my friend then, and my, still my friend, who was the all-star third baseman for English High School when I was in high school and uh, had had some, you know, really great baseball talents and instincts. Anyway, um, the, they were called the Boston Yanks at that time, and they were not a good team. But the joy of it was that they played all the good teams. Mm. Now, when I, Bob Waterfield uh, was a great quarterback, and I remember, I can just remember in my mind's eye him throwing the ball halfway down the field. Um, Sid Luckman was a great quarterback, a Jewish guy. Right. And he was, you know, if you can look up these guys, they were all great stars. Sid Luckman, L-U-C-K-M-A-N. He was terrific. Um, Sammy Baugh was maybe the greatest passer of the time. I mean, he could. He was another quarterback that was terrific. And Don Hudson, if you look at his records, it's incredible. He was a, a wide receiver, and I can see him. I mean, go way down the field and catch the ball, and uh, he had something well and, over. And, and I'm guessing, uh, I've seen films from those days. I mean, these guys were rough and tough, and, and they didn't have the kind of protection and padding they have now. I mean, that was a that was a rough game, right? Yeah, I think it's it rough was, today, but, I mean, it was really rough back then. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not a great aficionado of football because I think it's pretty violent. Yeah. And I think some of these guys take so many hits that they that they really, they really become affected by it. And the same thing in boxing. I mean, Muhammad Ali is a great hero of mine. Mm. I thought he was an unbelievable person. And, you know, he stayed in it long enough so that what happened later, like Parkinson's disease or whatever, can be accounted for uh, by brain injuries. I think Hudson, I think, not Hudson, H-U-T-S-O-N, Don Hudson, I think he had way over 1,000 receptions. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of touchdowns. You're right. Worth looking these guys up for people listening to this because uh, you, you get to see what they look like in that era. And also their their numbers and stats are impressive. 
They'd be making gazillions today, Larry. They gazillions. Would. They didn't make that much money. <laughs> no, they didn't make much. I want to uh, do one more Ted story with you, and then we're going to take a break and get into some memories of famous games. And I'm right there with you on all the games that we're going to talk about. But let's talk about Ted and Estrada and Priscilla Howe. And I have no pre-knowledge on this. 1960s, the year. Well, Priscilla Howe is the young lady I told you about that Sammy Dale was really an Italian guy. I told you about I think I, we did this story where he slipped me a Mickey Finn. Well, he, tell it again because it sounds juicy. What happened? Well, Priscilla Howe was a very lovely person. And, you know, she was like five years older than me. I thought, I said to myself, five years older than me? She Ancient. She's really old. <laughs> but she was a very, very attractive. And she took a liking to me, thank God. And um, so we, we dated for a while while she was singing at the, what they call, you know, it was the room, now the, um, the big hotel, the Statler. Oh, yes, the Park Plaza, yeah, Statler. Yeah, Park Plaza. And they had in the back they that big room there, a lot of people came as visitors, like okay. Ginger Rogers, who knows who. And Sammy Dale and his group, a small group, he played the violin, and Priscilla Howe was the songstress. Okay. And she she was quite popular. Later she appeared on Arthur Godfrey's, Godfrey's show. So I went down there in my first or second year as a lawyer with uh, Bruce Phillips, who was working with me in Morris Michelson's office, and he slipped me a Mickey, and I said to, I said to Bruce, Halfway through the uh, presentation, Bruce, I can't see. He says, he can't see? I said, no, you'll have to help me get outside. Well, to make a long story short, he had slipped me the mickey. Could have killed me, I suppose. I wound up flat on my back upstairs. My mother and my father and other people came. The doctor came, and he said, he's been slipped a mickey. So, you know, let him recover here and then take him home and mm. sleep it off and so forth. So that was the story with that i mean um <laughs> i could have been you know any uh comeback to him after that did you no because i didn't want to threaten her job in any way and um she had a good job there all right so that's a, that's the priscilla house story what about no, Ted? well so i took her out to the ball game uh, one day um in the ted's last season in 1960 okay. now in 1960 ted williams at 42 was still the best hitter in the league. They didn't have any DH at that time. And he hit 29 home runs in 320 official at-bats. Now, that's remarkable. Guys don't—29 and 30, it's like a homer every 11 times. And um, he still, you know, batted well over 300, and so he was still great. But anyway, Chuck Estrada was the pitcher of the year that year by the Sporting News Pitcher of the Year, paying for Baltimore. So this game was late in the season, in September, early September, and uh, Ted hit a home run off Estrada early in the game. It was sort of a windblown uh, giant fly that he hit that, you know, clanged off the back wall of the bullpen, three-run homer. Now then, pitchers pitched. They didn't get relieved in the fifth inning. So there was Estrada in the eighth inning, socks behind, two guys on, and a you can see Estrada saying, this old coot's not going to hit another one off me. And he fed him fastball after fastball after fa And he could throw, he probably well over 95 miles an hour. And Ted kept fouling him off. So I turned to Priscilla. She was very sweet. She was a lovely lady. I want to say that she was really, she'll be full Lois, and she was really nice. 
And um, so uh, I turned to her and I said, you know, Priscilla, I said, you know, there's not a fastball that was ever thrown, whether by Bob Fell or anybody else, that Ted Williams couldn't hit. And I said, if Estrada keeps throwing that without mixing it up with anything else, he's going to hit one of them. <laughs> and I'm sure the answer is? And the answer is, at this time, it was not a big fly. It was the line drive. And it was a line drive that buzzed. It probably was it was probably going at 115 miles an hour. And it went straight over the 420 sign, about 10 or 12 rows into the bleachers, and won the game. You know, you could give lessons on how to impress a chick by by sitting next to her at a baseball game and saying, watch this. That that You're too cool for the room now, Larry. You're too cool for the room. What can I say? Well— you owe, Ted owed you one that day, right? Oh, yeah. She said, but that, that was a great home run. And I missed a couple of weeks later. I missed, It was only, you know, his final home run. Yeah, on the, yeah. You know, uh, that was written up by John Updike. Right, and millions were there, apparently, quote, unquote, right? <laughs> I missed that one. Yeah. But yeah, I was someplace else. But um, those, those two home runs were fantastic. I can't wait to talk to you in our next episode about certain moments in certain games that are universally recognized as key Red Sox moments. <laughs> so we'll share that. Larry, as always, thank you. And uh, thank you, Chuck Estrada, wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on a life lived backwards, one man's life.